Part One, Chapter Eight A of the Adventures of Jimmy Dale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. The Adventures of Jimmy Dale by Frank L. Packard, reading by Mary Rohde. Part One: The Man in the Case. Chapter Eight A: The Man Higher Up. The tocsin, by neither act, sign, nor word had she evidenced the slightest interest in that ring, and yet she must know, she certainly must know, that it was now in his possession. Jimmy Dale was disappointed. Somehow he had counted more than he had cared to admit on developments from that ring. He pulled a little viciously at his cigarette as he stared out of the St. James Club window. That was how long ago? Ten days? Yes, this would be the eleventh. Eleven days now, and no word from her. Eleven days since that night at old Isaac's, since she had last called him, the gray seal, to arms. It was a long while, so long a while, even, that what had come to be his prerogative in the newspapers, the front page with three-inch type, recounting some new exploit of that mysterious criminal the gray seal was being usurped the papers were howling now about what they for the lack of a better term were pleased to call a wave of crime that had inundated new york and of which for once the gray seal was not the storm center but rather for the moment forgotten he drew back from the window and settling himself again in the big leather lounging chair, resumed the perusal of the evening paper. His eye fell on what was common to every edition now, a crime editorial, and the paper crackled suddenly under the long, slim, tapering fingers, so carefully nurtured, whose sensitive tips a hundred times had made mockery of the human ingenuity squandered on the intricate mechanism of safes and vaults. No, he was wrong. The gray seal had not been forgotten. We should not be surprised, wrote the editor virulently, to discover at the bottom of these abominable atrocities that the guiding spirit, in fact, was the gray seal. They are quite worthy even of his diabolical disregard for the laws of God and man. Jimmy Dale's lips straightened ominously, and an angry glint crept into his dark, steady eyes. There was nothing, then, nothing too vile, that in the public's eyes could not logically be associated with the gray seal. Even this, a series of the most cold-blooded, callous murders and robberies, the work on the face of it of a well-organized band of thugs, brutal, insensate, little better than fiends, though clever enough so far to have evaded capture, clever enough, indeed, to have kept the police still staggering and gasping after a clue for one murder, while another was in the very act of being committed. The Gray Seal! What exquisite irony! And yet, after all, the papers were not wholly to blame for what they said. He had invited much of it. Seeming crimes of the Gray Seal had apparently been genuine beyond any question of doubt, as he had intended them to appear, 
as in the very essence of their purpose they had to be. Yes, he had invited much, he and she together, the toxin and himself. He, Jimmy Dale, millionaire, club man, whose name for generations in New York had been the family pride, was wanted as the gray seal for so many crimes that he had lost track of them himself. But from any one of which, let the identity of the gray seal be once solved, there was and could be no escape. What exquisite irony, yet full, too, of the most deadly consequences. Once more Jimmy Dale's eyes sought the paper, and this time scanned the headlines of the first page. Brutal murder of mill paymaster. The crime wave still at its height. Herman Rossler found dead near his car. Assassins escape with twenty thousand dollars. Jimmy Dale read on, and as he read there came again that angry set to his lips. The details were not pleasant. Herman Rossler, the paymaster of the Martindale Kensington Mills, whose plant was on the Hudson, had gone that morning in his runabout to the nearest town, three miles away, for the monthly payroll, had secured the money from the bank, a sum of twenty-odd-thousand dollars, and had started back with it for the mill. At first, it being broad daylight and a well-frequented road, his non-appearance caused no apprehension. But as early afternoon came, and there was still no sign of Rossler, the mill management took alarm. Discovering that he had left the bank for the return journey at a few minutes before eleven, and that nothing had been seen of him at his home, the police were notified. Followed then several hours of fruitless search, until finally, with the whole countryside aroused and the efforts of the police augmented by private search parties, the car was found in a thicket at the edge of a crossroad some four miles back from the river, and, a little way from the car, the body of Rossler, dead, the man's head crushed in where it had been fiendishly battered by some blunt, heavy object. There was no clue. No one could be found who had seen the car on the crossroad. The murderer, or murderers, and the twenty-odd thousand dollars in cash had disappeared, leaving no trace behind. There were several columns of this, which Jimmy Dale skimmed through quickly, but at the end he stared for a long time at the last paragraph. Somehow, strange to relate, the paper had neglected to turn its sob artist loose, and the few words, added almost as though they were an afterthought, for once rang true and full of pathos in their very simplicity. At the Rossler home, where Mrs. Rossler was prostrated, two little tots of five and seven, too young to understand, had gravely received the reporter and told him that some bad man had hurt their daddy. Jimmy Dale lowered his paper. A club attendant was standing before him, respectfully extending a silver card tray. From the man, Jimmy Dale's eyes fixed on a white envelope on the tray. One glass was enough. It was hers, that letter. The toxin again. His brain seemed suddenly to be afire, and he could feel his pulse quicken. The blood began to pound in fierce throbs at his heart. 
Life and death lay in that white, innocent-looking, unaddressed envelope. Danger, peril. It was always life and death, for those were the stakes for which the toxin played. But master of many things, Jimmy Dale was most of all master of himself. Not a muscle of his face moved. He reached nonchalantly for the letter. Thank you, said Jimmy Dale. The man bowed and started away. Jimmy Dale laid the envelope on the arm of the lounging chair. The man had reached the door when Jimmy Dale stopped him. Oh, by the way, said Jimmy Dale languidly, where did this come from? Your chauffeur, sir, replied the other. Your chauffeur gave it to the hall porter a moment ago, sir. Thank you, said Jimmy Dale again. The door closed. Jimmy Dale glanced around the room. It was the caution of habit, that glance, the habit of years in which his life had hung on little things. He was alone in one of the club's private library rooms. He picked up the envelope, tore it open, took out the folded sheets inside, and began to read. At the first words he leaned forward, suddenly tense in his chair. He read on, turning the pages hurriedly, incredulity, amazement, and finally a strange menace mirroring itself in turn upon his face. He stood up, the letter in his hand. "'My God!' whispered Jimmy Dale. It was a call to arms such as the Gray Seal had never received before, such as the toxin had never made before. And if it were true, it— "'True,' he laughed aloud a little gratingly. "'True!' Had the toxin, astoundingly, unbelievably, mystifying as were the means by which she acquired her knowledge not only of this, but of countless other affairs, ever, by so much as the smallest detail, been astray, if it were true? He pulled out his watch. It was half-past nine. Benson, his chauffeur, had sent the letter into the club. Benson had been waiting outside there ever since dinner. Jimmy Dale, for the first time since the first communication that he had ever received from the toxin, did not immediately destroy her letter now. He slipped it into his pocket and stepped quickly from the room. In the cloakroom downstairs, he secured his hat and overcoat, and, though it was a warm evening, put on the latter, since he was in evening clothes, then walked leisurely out of the club. At the curb, Benson, the chauffeur, sprang from his seat, and, touching his cap, opened the door of a luxurious limousine. Jimmy Dale shook his head. "'I shall not keep you waiting any longer, Benson,' he said. "'You may take the car home and put it up. I shall probably be late to-night.' "'Very good, sir,' replied the chauffeur. "'You sent in a letter a moment or so ago, Benson?' observed Jimmy Dale casually opening his cigarette case. "'Yes, sir,' said Benson. "'I hope I didn't do wrong, sir. He said it was important, and that you were to have it at once.' "'He?' Jimmy Dale was lighting his cigarette now. "'A boy, sir,' Benson amplified. "'I couldn't get anything out of him. He just said he'd been told to give it to me, and tell me to see that you got it at once. I hope, sir, I haven't—' "'Not at all, Benson,' said Jimmy Dale pleasantly. "'It's quite all right. Good night, Benson.' 
"'Good night, sir,' Benson answered, climbing back to his seat. There was a queer little smile on Jimmy Dale's lips as he watched the great car swing around in the street and glide noiselessly away. A queer little smile that still held there, even after he himself had started briskly along the avenue in a downtown direction. It was invariably the same, always the same. The letters came unexpectedly when least looked for, now by this means, now by that, but always in a manner that precluded the slightest possibility of tracing them to their source. Was there anything in his intimate surroundings, in his intimate life, that she did not know about him, who knew absolutely nothing about her? Benson, for instance, that the man was absolutely trustworthy, or else she would never for an instant have risked the letter in his possession. Was there anything that she did not? Yes, one thing. She did not know him in the role he was going to play tonight. That, at least, was one thing that surely she did not know about him, the role in which, many times, for weeks on end, he had devoted himself body and soul in an attempt to solve the mystery with which she surrounded herself. The role, too, that often enough had been a bulwark of safety to him when hard-pressed by the police. The role out of which he had so carefully, so painstakingly created a now-recognized and well-known character of the underworld, the role of Larry the Bat. Jimmy Dale turned from Fifth Avenue into Broadway, continued on down Broadway, across to the Bowery, kept along the Bowery for several more blocks, and finally headed east into the dimly lighted cross street on which the sanctuary was located. And now Jimmy Dale became cautious in his movements. As he approached the black alleyway that flanked the miserable tenement, he glanced sharply behind and about him, and at the alleyway itself, without pause, but with a curious lightning-like sidestep, no longer Jimmy Dale now, but the gray seal, he disappeared from the street, and was lost in the deep shadows of the building. In a moment he was at the side door, listening for any sound from within. None had ever seen or met the lodger of the first floor, either ascending or descending, except in the familiar character of Larry the Bat. He opened the door, closed it behind him, and in the utter blackness went noiselessly up the stairs, stairs so rickety that it seemed a mouse's tread alone would have set them creaking. There seemed an art in the play of Jimmy Dale's every muscle, in the movements, lithe, balanced, quick, absolutely silent. On the first landing he stopped before another door. There was a faint click of a key turning in the lock, and then this door, too, closed behind him. Sounded the faint click of the key as it turned again, and Jimmy Dale drew a long breath, stepped across the room to assure himself that the window blind was down, and lighted the gas jet. A yellow murky flame spurted up, pitifully weak, almost as though it were ashamed of its disreputable surroundings. Dirt, disorder, squalor, the evidence of low living testified eloquently enough to anyone, the police, for instance, in times past inquisitive, 
until they were fatuously content with the belief that they knew the occupant for what he was, that the place was quite in keeping with its tenant, a mute prototype, as it were, of Larry the Bat, the dope fiend. For a little space Jimmie Dale, immaculate in his evening clothes, stood in the center of the miserable room, his dark eyes keen, alert, critical, sweeping comprehensively over every object about him, the position of a chair, of a cracked drinking-glass on a broken-legged table, of an old coat thrown with apparent carelessness on the floor at the foot of the bed, of a broken bottle that had innocently strewn some sort of white powder close to the threshold, inviting unwary foot-tracks across the floor. And then, taking out the toxin's letter, he laid it upon the table, placed what money he had in his pockets beside it, and began rapidly to remove his clothes. The sanctuary had not been invaded since his last visit there. He turned back the oilcloth in the far corner of the room, took up the piece of loose flooring, which, however, strangely enough, fitted so closely as to give no sign of its existence, even should it inadvertently, by some curious visitor again, be trod upon, and from the aperture beneath lifted out a bundle of clothes and a small box. Undressed now, he carefully folded the clothes he had taken off, laid them under the flooring, and began to dress again, his wardrobe supplied by the bundle he had taken out in exchange, an old pair of shoes, the laces broken, mismated socks, patched trousers, frayed at the bottoms, a soiled shirt, collarless, open at the neck. Attired to his satisfaction, he placed the box upon the table, propped up a cracked mirror, sat down in front of it, and with a deft artist's touch began to apply stain to his hands, wrists, neck, throat, and face. But the hardness, the grim menace that now grew into the dominant characteristic of his features, was not due to the stain alone. Dear philanthropic crook, his eyes were on the toxin's letter that lay before him. He read on, for once, even to Jimmy Dale's keen, facile mind, a first reading had failed to convey the full significance of what she had written. It was too amazing, almost beyond belief, the series of crimes, rampant for the past few weeks, at which the community had stood aghast. The brutal murder of Rossler, but a few hours old, lay bare before his eyes. It was all there, all of it, the details, the hellish cleverness, the personnel even of the thugs, all, everything, except the proof. Get him, Jimmy, the man higher up. Get him, Jimmy, before another pays forfeit with his life. The words seemed to leap out at him from the white page in red dancing lines. Get him, Jimmy, the man higher up. Jimmy Dale finished the second reading of the letter, read it again for the third time, then tore it into tiny fragments. His fingers delved into the box again, and the transformation of Jimmy Dale, member of New York's most exclusive social set, into a low, vicious-featured denizen of the underworld, went on. A little wax applied skillfully behind the ears, 
in the nostrils, and under the upper lip. End of Part 1, Chapter 8A